right now is is a point in kind of the general climate where we need more direct conversation. Um, I think I will speak for white America. I think we need to do a lot of not just soul searching, but acknowledgement of privilege, but also of systematic racism. We have to understand that whether you're white or black in this country, we're not monoliths, right? And we're not treated like, hey, all white people are this way or all black people are this way or all other people. You know, there's intersectionalities, there's lived experiences, there is a income construct or social economic piece that is so interwoven into this narrative that we have to take into context all of those things. So it goes back to like our days of doing planning and strategy work, right? Welcome to the... (laughs) No, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, How about this? (laughs) No, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. My friends Tawana Harris and Nicola Smith are creating a new initiative called Gray Matter, and I am so honored that they wanted to officially launch Gray Matter right here on this podcast. I'm just so in awe of these two leaders and what they're trying to build, and I'm sure you will be as well after you listen to this episode. Let's get into it. Okay, this episode of my podcast is really interesting to me because it's the first time I've had two guests. Um, and two people who uh, I, I really admire and respect. One has already been on my podcast. So this is like a whole new world for me. Um, Nicola and Twana, would you both say who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am Nicola Smith. I am a marketing strategist and a visual artist. Um, and I am originally from uh, South Africa. But now I live here in Atlanta, Georgia. All right. Tawana? Thank you so much, Jeff. Okay, so I have kind of grown up in the space of brand marketing, but I will tell you that I'm pretty much like an observer of people. I'm a connector. I'm a storyteller. I grew up as a young lady, um, as as a young girl in the rural um, Georgia south of, I'm sorry, the rural south. In Live Oak, Florida, the big metropolis, that's still about 10,000 people. So I bring a very interesting perspective around like just watching people and understanding how the world operates. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Well, let, let's start with this. How did you two meet? When did that happen? You know, years ago. I don't even know how long it's been. <laughs> 10 years, maybe longer. 
Yeah. So it was at one of Nicola's um, Digital Diva events. And as I was leaving, I can't even remember, but somehow, some way we kind of caught up with each other in the entrance, had some conversations. We immediately clicked and she invited me. It was, she told me about Creative Mornings for the first time. And so we just stayed in contact and our paths would continue to cross and we just built a relationship over the years. Yeah. And um, I was trying to remember, um, Tawana, when we met, um, I mean, it's been a little while now, but I was trying to remember. I know you came to the opening of our office, Dragon Army's office. You came to the big event. Dude, we met so much farther back than that. So we met at Atlanta Tech Village. Oh, wow. A long time ago when they would do the huge um, pitch event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we met through Joe Kaufman. Oh, so, so many people. You know, when you said one of the things you do is connect people, I'm like, well, that's Joe Kaufman. He loves to connect people. All right. Yep. Well, that makes sense. That yep. makes sense. Okay. So why we're here, other than you guys are awesome and, and having a chat with you, I'll do anytime, is because when Nicole and I were talking, um, she mentioned this initiative, this platform, this thing that you two were doing together. Gray Matter, is that right? Yep. And, and I think it's, well, I'm going to let you guys tell, but part of it may or may not be a podcast. And then I said, well, hey, until you get spun up, I'd be honored if you would do it here and let's get it going. And so that's why we're here today. But talk to me about what Gray Matter is and, and uh, what your plans are. Okay. Um, it is really a discussion on race, which um, seems to be something we're doing on a national level. But we decided we wanted to bring some different perspectives to the table that are really informed by our personal experiences. Um, as well as some of the other experiences and stories of people in our network. And a a big piece of this is, you know, we're on a podcast, so you can't see us, but um, I am a white African Jew. Yes, that's correct. I am an immigrant from South Africa, as I mentioned. I have very pale skin. I have blonde hair. um, And, you know, I lived in South Africa during apartheid. And so I have a very different perspective on race than I would say many white people who are American or who are born here. Um, And similarly, I think Tawana has a a very interesting and very broad perspective in many ways on, um, you know, kind of the African-American experience in the United States, which you can speak to obviously far more than, than I can. So Tawana, if you want to jump in. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, as Nicola suggested, I um, have a very interesting perspective, Um, you know, as an African-American female, you know, with American family born in the rural South, um, our family had a close proximity to slavery. It wasn't, you know, several generations removed. It was simply my grandparents were not only slaves, but they, I'm sorry, my great grandparents were not only slaves, but they were actually the children of the slave masters. And so a lot of the repercussions, the implications that tend to exist for generations, for centuries, you know, we have, we literally still are troubled with some of those same dynamics. We're unlearning some behaviors that, you know, were passed down over time. We call them generational curses. 
and um, we're really trying to kind of, you know, deal with the pain and the trauma from those past experiences. And so Nicola being in my life, you know, was one of those people that I didn't have to do the hard work with. You know, when we talked about tough conversations, she just got it. And that was a part of us really being able to click. I realized that if she was in the room and someone said something that was sideways, I didn't have to say anything. She would actually say it. So um, it's just been amazing. And, I, and, and our hope is that we can create a new world to where there are better, there are more conversations that are easier to have just because there is the desire for openness and empathy and connection and really building, building unity as opposed to divisiveness. Mm. And you're both creators. Whose idea was it to do something together and create this new thing? We've been talking about doing something together for years. And the what it's going to be has changed like very <laughs> But it just felt like right now is, is a point in kind of the general climate where we need more direct conversation. Um, I think... I will speak for white America. I think we need to do a lot of not just soul searching, but acknowledgement of privilege, but also of systematic racism, of how our we ourselves and certainly our ancestors were at a minimum complicit um, in in this behavior. And again, I think coming from South Africa where, you know, one of the things Tawana and I have talked about is it's been really interesting for me as race has become another um, major point of contention, not that it ever wasn't, but where it's in the media to the extent that it is today. And so much of the discussion is about white people needing to recognize their privilege, which is true. But being born in apartheid era South Africa there has never, ever been a time in my life where I wasn't overtly aware of the fact that I was white and that I had privilege because of it, because it was codified into law. We were taught it in schools. It was part of every interaction in our society, in our culture. Black people worked for you. They were not the same as you. You are better than them. You have more rights than them, codified into the legal status of every action you may have taken in that country. And so for me, this, this kind of, you know, burgeon, burgeoning conversation, the way that this has come to the forefront um, is in some ways very foreign. Like, how could you not understand your white privilege? And yet at the same time, I've been living in this country for 20 years now, and I overtly experience white privilege and and am the best beneficiary of it on a regular basis. Um, everything from, you know, cops call me ma'am and say sorry to me when they're giving me a ticket, even when I actually broke a traffic law, um, you know, to being jumped to the front of the line at immigration because of how I look. So I've experienced it from both sides. Like I, I guess I have that, um, I have the luxury of, of being able to bring a completely different perspective to the table. And the, the name gray matter who came up with that and what does that mean? <laughs> um, I think we were toying around with some, with some, with some names back and forth. And I think I may have suggested 
it just because, you know, one of the things that I think about is a lot of times racism is not a black or white issue. Like it's not just black and white. And I mean that figuratively as well as literally. Right. So I think a lot of times we don't understand what it is. It just is what it is. Right. And that's factual. Right. But I think it's the how and the why we got here at this particular moment is really indicative of the word gray matters. Gray is seen as that ambiguous middle ground, you know, that matter that nobody really knows what to do. It's either yes or no, or black and white. And, and that's not what this is, right? We have to understand that whether you're white or black in this country, we're not monoliths, right? And we're not treated like, hey, all white people are this way, or all black people are this way, or all other people, you know, there's intersectionalities, there's lived experiences, there is a uh, um and a uh, income construct or social economic piece that is so interwoven into this narrative um, that we have to take into context all of those things. So it goes back to like our days of doing planning and strategy work, right? And it's really about being able to understand all the things, being able to see the things that aren't necessarily shown to us and to hear the things that nobody tells us, right? We really have to figure out how do we really get to the point to where we address how people are truly feeling? Where did that even originate? And how can we start to change and shift minds, perspectives, hearts, and hopefully some policy, right? I think wh- where we are right now is, you know, if we turn on the on social media or on the news, we hear the words thrown around as we're going through an awakening or reckoning. And it's all of that, Right. And what we're realizing is that we actually have to just wake up and say, this is what it is, have some acknowledgement around what it is, and then really have some deep, really uncomfortable conversations about how it's manifested itself, not only in our world, but in our own minds and in our own hearts. And how do we deal with that? Um, One of the things that I'd love for your two perspectives on, um, and I love the fact that you're doing this um, now and creating this because it it's something that needs to be obviously continued, not just in this moment. And I was listening to um, an African-American pastor um, giving a sermon, and she said um, that, you know, one of her white friends asked like, hey, what should I be doing? How should I be helping? And she said, Think about it like this. It's not what you do in the next three days or three weeks or three months. What are you doing in the next three years or 10 years? Like this is not something that can be easily forgotten or shouldn't be. But my fear is that the part of the reason that there has been this awakening is because we're all sitting at home and, uh, you know, people like myself of privilege, we can't just go hear something awful, go, oh, that's terrible, and then go to our next meeting and go get our coffee. We, we're sitting with it, and we're absorbing it more. And so I guess the the cynical part of me as I read the history of civil rights in this country is, is that at times like this, the 1960s, like you had this, but then it sort of people forget. And to Nicola's point, it's easy in this country to just sit in your white privilege and not think about it. Um, it's so easy. So I guess give me hope <laughs> or how do you guys see that happening six months from now, a year from now when there's a vaccine and we're all back to life? Like how do we make sure this stays top of mind without needing people to be murdered every day in the streets? I mean, I would say that it's it's getting 
beyond the performative element, right? So I think right now what I've seen is that, you know, specifically what what is really relevant to us is that there's a lot of brands out here that are just trying to figure out what do we do, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the easiest things to do are to make statements and to write checks, right? Um, but l- let's think about that. You know, if you were an absentee father, right? And you came back into your kid's life in at 15 years, that check and that I'm sorry just really doesn't mean a whole lot. Like you really have to think about like, how do I make up for the last 15 years, right? Then how do I earn trust? How do I earn, you know, some sort of hope and optimism for a community of people that are literally watching live executions of their brothers, of their uncles, of their dads, of their cousins, of their friends every single day. Um, And it's also, if you add that to um, just what we deal with, just the fact that what Nicola was mentioning earlier, when a cop shows up for her, it's, I'm sorry to inconvenience your day, but you broke a law and I have to give you this ticket. On my side, I don't, I have fear, but nothing close to the fear that my boys or my husband may have. And so the fear that I live with every single day is just making sure that they call me back when I text them because a simple a simple traffic stop for them could mean death. Um, and so those are the scary moments that we have to understand that each other work with, right? And so I had a conversation a couple of years ago over at Google, and it was an amazing conversation with a great group of people. And one of the things that there's a narrative out here around Black women being angry, right? There's this whole fictitious notion of the angry Black woman. And even though I don't necessarily align nor agree with that narrative, I also put in pause to say, (laughs) we should be fucking angry. Excuse me. You know, we should be super angry. You know, if you think about it and you really go back and look at like historical perspectives and history books, you didn't see anybody who was black that looked like me. Right. And so what does that look like when your ancestors have had to deal with that your whole entire life and not having a choice of when they actually chose to be um, intimate with someone and literally being called to help because they were tremendously darker than the kids that they walked around the city every day, you know, and there's just always this dehumanizing element every single day that you have to deal with. And that's just on the female side. That's not the D that's not the demasculation or the emasculation of men that, that basically had to say, whatever you tell me to do, I do it. Right. And literally being broken down to the point to where they basically had to, um, dumb down themselves and what they were able to bring to the table. And I think as a marketer, what gives me hope is that you have people like yourself, have people in my space like Nicola, who understand the value of centering voices like mine, right? And centering other voices that have traditionally completely been, have have gone unheard or just have never even been given a platform to speak on, Right. And so understanding that that creates empathy, it creates understanding. It's hard. It's ugly conversation. It's an ugly history. But I think if we uh, if we if we talk about it and we embrace it and we understand that 
Nicola's not the person who created these laws, but maybe, you know, maybe her ancestors were complicit in that space. I've got to give her some space around some of that stuff too. But it's also a give and take. It's because she's coming to me and she's like, I understand that I have privilege and I'd like to use that in any way, shape or form to open a door, to remove a barrier, to remove an obstacle for you. And so there's this initial like give and take that we're just constantly growing with each other over. And I think that that's what's going to be that is what is going to take us into this next space. Yeah, and I I agree with all of that. I also there are some truths that are just immutable. Um, when you look at Generation Z, they are majority um, biracial, right? So whether white America is ready or not the demographic changes are going to continue to force us to face these questions, whether it's this November or if we have an election, if there isn't an election this November. Um, but, you know, like at some point there, there is just a, there's a momentum in population change that is unstoppable, period. So, so you can, you know, Again, this goes back to my experience in South Africa. Can a minority rule a majority? Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. Um, but what's very difficult when you're doing that is to pretend like you weren't doing something wrong. So in South Africa, you know, again, I growing up there during apartheid and immigrating to the South was a really interesting experience because I experienced in many ways, more overt racism here in the South in regards to the things white people would say to me about Black people than I did in South Africa under apartheid, where it was codified by law and it was just understood to be, this is the case, we are not equal, we are better, they are, they are not as good as us. Here, there's a lot of pretending of unity or, um, you know, it, especially in the South, maybe it gets glossed over with a little bit of that Southern hospitality. But the things that white, white people, especially when I first immigrated and my accent was really strong, um, they would hear my accent. They would say, where are you from? And I'd say South Africa. And I literally multiple times had people say to me, oh, you guys had the right idea. Man, I wish we could have implemented the same thing here. Man, why did you leave? You guys were in were in the right position. Like overtly saying to me, we should be subjugating black people in this country and man, you guys had the right plan. And for me, it's highly offensive because I don't support any of that. And yet people see a South African flag and white people and make assumptions about my views on race. They assume that I'm racist like them. Um, you know, so it's, it's, that is, is, has been an interesting experience um, for me in this country. And I actually, Twana, I don't know if I ever told you the story. I think I was saving it for this podcast. Um, but let's hear it. Let's hear it. I told Jeff, but it was off the record last time. So, um, so I was a, a few weeks ago, it's during COVID. Um, I have a big South African flag hanging up off of my house. And um, I had had a couple of glasses of wine. I was on my back porch and my husband comes up to me and he says, this woman just rang the doorbell 
And she saw the South African flag and she wanted to see who was South African. And I'm like, did you just promise some random woman that I'm going to go out there and speak to her? And he's like, well, yeah. So I'm like, man, I don't even like meeting random people in the, on a regular basis. But I go out there and there's, there's a woman out there and, you know, she stays socially distanced, but she asks me about South Africa and she tells me that she was originally from South Africa. She moved when she was seven and she still feels South African and she wishes she had more South African friends, but most of her friends are American. And, you know, so she, she kind of tells me all about herself. Um, and I say, well, you know, you can have my, my number. Feel free to text me if you're in the area. Maybe we can grab coffee, you know, at some point when some of this COVID stuff is over. And her son has gotten out of the car with his dog and they're running around my yard. And as she's backing away, she says, I'm just so, so happy I saw your flag. I was driving around here and, you know, there's like all these Black Lives Matter signs like on the corner and really all lives matter, you know, all lives matter. And actually, there was a, a rabbi, because she was Jewish as well. She's like, there was a rabbi in Brooklyn who was recently attacked by a black man. So all lives matter. And I'm just like, dude, I had to like physically restrain myself to keep my shit together. Because I'm like, I cannot go off on this woman with her like young kid in the, the yard. And I've been drinking. Like, this is not the time, right? <laughs> But she texts me and she's like, hey, it's me. It was great meeting you. I would love to um, see if we could have you over for dinner. And I just wrote her back and I said to her, you know, because we talked about the fact that I'm Jewish as well. So we had we had discussed that. And I said to her, you know, something that you said really just struck and unnerved me. I want you to know that I'm a full supporter of Black Lives Matter. Um, I, in fact, being Jewish and knowing what our ancestors have been through is what calls me to service to make sure that other marginalized and under, underrepresented groups have a voice. Like, I know how our people were, have been treated. We have an opportunity to stand up and, and do better for others around us. And that's what we should be doing. And I basically ended it by saying, I'm really only looking to put energy into relationships with people who care about the same types of issues and who believe that it is their role to um, stand up for those who are marginalized. Thanks. And I never heard back from her. <laughs> Shocking, I know. I'm sure. I'm sure. I I don't even know what to say. Like, I'm, I'm so ecstatic that you saved that for me right now. But like, I'm trying not to talk a whole lot because that like literally brings me to tears um, to just have people in my space, I just feel so privileged and so honored, you know, and I have so many amazing friends and what they don't know, they're constantly trying to learn. And when all of this stuff first happened and um, I've shared with people, you know, they were like, well, where did you guys decide to, you know, to live? And the first thing that happens, you know, traditional Atlanta conversation, like, did you guys decide to buy or do you, you know, you guys just going to make a temporary move or whatever? And one of the things that I had told a friend a while back is that for me, I got to know that I have a house full of athletes, black male athletes. And I have, to, and this was years before Ahmad Arbery and that whole situation. But I said, I need to make sure that it's a neighborhood safe enough for them to run. I know that sounds so abstract, 
But my husband's from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi and he believes in a good sweat, right? And so if you're familiar with that area, it is hot as crap. I mean, it is like a sauna every single day during the summer. And even back then, because he's always been an athlete, he would put on a sweatshirt and go out and get a good sweat. So you can only imagine what he piles on here. And so when we first moved into Atlanta, he would put on a hoodie at 4.30 in the morning and go run the streets of Buckhead, the more residential side of Buckhead. And it would terrify me. I literally would stay in the bed and toss and turn until he got back. And I'm like, could you please not wear the hood? Could you please not wear so many clothes? Because it just doesn't look normal. And he was like, but this is what I do to get a sweat. And I said, but that's not what everybody else is thinking. I'll, I'll also say that like last year we were, a couple of years ago, my son was playing a football game up in Louisville, Kentucky. And we did these, my husband's a road road warrior. And so he likes to do these like turnaround trips. So we would go up to Louisville for the day, you know, first thing in the morning, tailgate, go to the game, and then like literally hit the road and come back. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me how. I just don't know. But it's 5 a.m., 6 a.m. in the morning. The sun is just breaking and a car in front of us starts to completely do like this, you know, 360 moving around. And I remember seeing a truck next to her. I don't know if the truck tipped her or if it just happened. Right. But either way, the car kind of spin and it like went back. It, it kind of almost went in reverse into the ditch. And it was um, the woman gets out. She's probably 72 years old. She's an older white woman and she runs up and my husband gets out of the car and she runs and she hugs him. And for those next two or three minutes, I was the most terrified I've been in a long time. Because as we see on the road, there are big trucks and big Confederate flags. And and when people see that type of thing, they have no clue what happened. Right. They just see something that just doesn't look right to them. And those are the types of fears that we live with every day. Just trying to be there and say, ma'am, are you okay? You know, my husband went and, and drove her car out of the ditch. You know what I'm saying? And then got her back on her way. We followed her to the next exit, make, made sure she was okay. But that shouldn't be a scary moment for us. In no way, shape or form that my husband is trying to help an older white, somebody's mom. And that was the most terrifying moment for me for like a good three or four minutes. My son was like, do y'all need help? I said, I'm going to stay in the car. It's too many black men at one time, right? And so understand that that whole Southern experience. So mine is from North Florida. My husband's from Mississippi. We get it. But then at the same time, we also believe in humanity even more. And so those are the moments to where we have to have conversations so that people understand, yes, all lives do matter. But the only reason why a movement like Black Lives Matter is so major is because for so many years, Black lives have not mattered. And that's what it's really about. It's not about one life being more valuable than the other. It is simply about saying these are people, these are human beings. And when they leave this earth, there are people who also lose a huge chunk of who they are when they lose their child. Yeah. So how do you guys try to make sure that, um, cause my gosh, the, the, just the stories you both told, but I can just imagine as this continues and you guys continue doing this, how do you make sure that people who really need to hear this hear it? Because part of what I'm afraid of is there's going to be people who, you know, want to hear this content, but that have these feelings that understand 
that you know no one's ever had to say white lives matter and 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 you know you need to process that and think well why why is so many people in our country feel like they have to say our my life matters but there's a lot of people that need to process that and think about that how do you get them to whether it's your message or any message like how do we get through to people so that they start having that empathy within them to understand that maybe there is something going on that I'm not seeing and I need to be a part of the solution. So I, I don't know if I can answer that question other than Twana and I are both marketing geniuses. So clearly we'll figure it out. Um, but, you know, I, I think that even that question in some ways has some assumptions in it, right? I might even say many. All of my friends lean liberal because I have pretty much removed anyone who, you know, is on the other side of kids being in cages and black lives not mattering, right? Um, Even within that contingency, there is a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of a lack of truly lack of understanding. There is an openness to learning. Um, but there's still a lot of people who would say that they support Black Lives Matter, that they want equality, that they believe in diversity, who are still part of the system that continues to enforce those things. And they are still dealing with their own defensiveness against being called out for certain things. And I think we've got to get in my opinion, we got to get white people past the feeling defensive. Like we got to get to the, yes, we did that. We suck. Here's how we're going to change. Um, and, and again, I just, I don't think we're there. So I actually think like we need to, in my mind, I want to speak to like the people who consider themselves moderates. I want to speak to the, the people who are liberals, but who, you know, still choose not to send their kids to public schools because, um, you know, that school's not good enough for their kid. Those are the people I want to reach. I don't know, Tawana, you may have a, a different view on that, but that's, I'm not trying to win over the Trump supporter, right? They're, they're a cult and they're in their own worlds. Like I'm trying to win over the people who are like, I support these things, but then all they do is change their Instagram profile picture. Like, cool, but that's performative. Like you actually, we actually all need to get to an active state of addressing these issues in our houses, with our kids, within our neighborhoods, our communities, our schools, our businesses, like, and and I feel like it's too easy to be performative, to be performatively supportive of these issues right now. And I, um, I agree with her completely. Um, my perspective is a little different. You know, I think that honestly, when I look back at my life and kind of sort of what has kept me moving and positive and hopeful and optimistic it has been storytelling that's been handed down by my, you know, by previous generations and the stories of resilience and perseverance and just pushing through, right? Is nothing's ever been easy, right? Um, but I went to a racial equity um, training a couple of years back. And what I loved is that because I am a marketer, I, I realized that I'm also probably more of like a little bit of a cultural anthropologist than anything else. I like to know why people are doing what they're doing. And so while I'm sitting here and I'm listening and I'm taking in all of this really rich information, I'm also looking at, okay, so they had this run by maybe a Black woman that was maybe in her 50s or so. 
and a white male, a white gay male that was like in his 30s, like super young, maybe lower 30s. And what I loved is strategically, they told stories, right? But they told, they utilized the right people to serve as the protagonists and the antagonists at really intricate moments. So Nicola is not just some white woman with blonde hair that I pulled off the street. She was somebody who had a certain level of consciousness, someone who had a certain level of experience that could bring this experience to the table fully. And I think that's how we have to approach these issues because they are very strategic blueprints for how we move forward. How do we create new social contracts with America? Like that's strategic. And we can't just be like, oh, well, just just get a white person and a black person and we'll put them in the room and they're going to make great music. And that's not how it works, right? You really have to have the right heart, the right soul, and a lot of the right brain. And so I know she joked about it earlier, but Nicola's a genius and I'm pretty badass myself. And so the two of us together, we are going to strategically outline every single step along this new pathway that we're introducing to America. We're going to miss some people and we're going to hit some people harder than they expected to be hit. That's all that we can do. I think the more hearts, minds, um, and perspectives that we change, that's an exponential process. They are going to change more hearts and minds. And hopefully we see this, this process to where it's just people continuing to reach back, reach forward the whole nine yards. It's like the push and pull of marketing, right? We literally want to push and we want to pull. And so I think that that, hey, if we can get people to switch from drinking Pepsi to Coke, we can surely get people to really understand. They may not totally be sold, but they're going to understand that maybe I should try it. Maybe I should experience a little bit of trial before we actually get into influencing the purchase. Like we're going to go back and literally introduce all of those principles all over again with this social construct. And Jeff, you know me, I just like to get people to kind of challenge what they think they know, challenge the norms, challenge why certain rules exist. Most of the time, rules are put in place by the people who benefit the most from them. So look at who benefits from the way things are structured. Um, it's not us. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not women, and it's certainly not people of color. And if you're a, a female person of color, well, you're really screwed. Um, you know, so I just, I want, I want white America to, to ask themselves questions. I want them to challenge their own constructs of reality and their own experiences. And I want them to start asking questions and getting comfortable being uncomfortable because that's how we're going to get through this. Honestly, is we all just need to get comfortable with the fact that we are going to have uncomfortable discussions for a number of years. And sometimes we're going to feel shitty and sometimes we're going to feel defensive and we've got to get past all of that. Is the, is the premise then um, that getting through to people affecting change sort of within, within them at a human level uh, so that they start to see what's happening, that that that's the only way and that's the best way for change to then happen. Is that, is that part of the idea? Like, because I, I, I see, for instance, um, when you talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, there's a and conscious capitalism. There's a lot of discussion to business owners, as an example, to say, "Hey, more diversity, and and you're going to be more profitable. More diversity, and you're going to retain people longer." It's not 
in my opinion, for the right reasons. Um, why, why isn't my industry, my company diverse? Are there things that are holding people back? And that's a problem that seems like it needs to be solved, not how can I make more profit? Because the problem I see there is that if I find the next thing that's going to make me even more profitable, I just move to that. And so to me, it feels like you have to affect people inside. And that's why conversation's important. Is that part of the big hope? Because this leads to my bigger question for you guys is like, what is the hope? What is really the hope as you, as you continue to do this? Is it to change people's hearts and minds to then affect, or is it something different? For me, it is. You know, I think that's the only hope that I have, right? You know, I think when we start talking about even like the diversity and inclusion conversation that you were just talking about, right? So I see in the African-American community, especially amongst like the youth, we're like, oh my gosh, we can get more Black kids into tech if we just push them into coding. If the narrative about them is still super harmful and is loaded with negative stereotypes and all of these assumptions, then they still get passed over for someone who might have bring to the table more mediocrity, but feels safer, feels more like a cultural fit, right? Um, And that's the bigger issue that we're dealing with. You know, it's not necessarily just intellect and genius. Um, What we're dealing with is just primarily narrative based upon cultural fit. What you know is what you're most comfortable with. And it's taking a chance on something else. Like I literally am happy to pull on Travis Scott as the lead endorser for my brand, but I'd never bring him into my company like to work. Like that's not an option. He doesn't meet all these criteria, but we will give him an honorary uh, creative director role. And so I think what's happening is you have an awakening of of um, black celebrities now that are just like, you know, at what point do we stop allowing ourselves to be pimped by brands? Right. And so my hope is that we can actually infuse a whole narrative of them understanding the value of the brand that they bring and ensuring that there are inclusion writers incorporate it with every single time they sign an endorsement deal, that there's diversity on the team that's managing my authentic activation within this brand strategy, right? Or that there are other ways in which the organization is also to including that piece. Because what happens is over time, you're essentially having other people tell your story. And so the damage of that is over a hundred years of like literally having other people who don't know your lived experience, tell your story. They're not also responsible for the negative implications that, that result as a, as a result of that. Um, And those are some of the things that I think when we're, when, when we're talking about, I mean, like one of the things that I talk to Nicola all the time about is there are three massive megaphones that are responsible for telling the story of who black people are worldwide. And those are, I'm going to kind of bucket them. So that's marketing, advertising, and media. That's one entertainment. And I'm talking all verticals, right? So whether that's sports, music, television, film, et cetera, and then technology, right? Tell me which one of those industries are not suffering from a grave lack of diversity representation. And so by and large, you basically have three um, areas that are over-indexing in terms of Black people creating content. You have over-indexing with Black people serving on the front lines of some of the actual shows. 
But by and large, when you look behind the cameras, when you look behind the people pulling the strings, pulling all the puppet strings, you don't have any Black representation whatsoever. So how authentic is the story? How fair is the narrative? How comprehensive is the narrative? And so when you fast forward 100, 200 years, you're still dealing with these historical narratives of people not even knowing who they are, what their contributions have been. And so now we end up with um, some incredible leadership of our country and um, (laughs) guiding us down a really misdirected path. And Jeff, you know, for me, I think you brought up something really interesting, but I do think a lot of not just issues with race, but issues with gender inequality. Um, A lot of this is tied to, you know, kind of an unfettered capitalistic system that is when the only way we can sell businesses on doing something is because it affects their bottom line, we have an issue. When they can't do the right thing, whether it's in relation to race, whether it's in relation to the climate, whether it's in relation to how they're treating their employees, until you can prove that there is a monetary ROI, we're all screwed because, you know, that that is basically the only criteria then that's being looked at is, are we going to make money from this? And with a lot of the things that we need to change in this world, we're talking long-term change. It's taken a long time to get here, and it's going to take a long time to change. And none of these things are about immediate ROI. And that's where I, you know, Tawana, even just some of the things you were talking about, like the performative nature of brand involvement, um, even with donations, even with DNI initiatives, Again, they they feel like um, checking the easy box. I think individuals need to sit with race and they need to sit with themselves and race. And then they need to bring that into their workplaces. And I do think we, I don't know how we move forward without re-looking at the system of capitalism in this country, which is basically built on the back of slaves and continues to be built on you know, the subjugation of certain groups of people, whether they're people of color, whether they're immigrants, whether they're undocumented. Um, So I I don't see how we, we change some of these things without saying, maybe our view of capitalism needs to shift a little bit. Maybe it's not a profit above everything else. Um, Not just maybe, but it shouldn't be, but that is the way that most business runs today. So to me, it, it's tied into all of those things. I don't see how you decouple um, social issues from economic issues, um, especially when you know we have an administration who is pushing on the limits of of those issues in a very deliberate way um, to make people's lives harder. Well, I think that. Um it's a conversation that certainly needs to be had. And, um, I think I know the answer to this, but, um, I'm going to ask it because I want you, you both to, to share this. What, what's unique, what's different? Why you two, um, what are you hoping, what, what new flavor or direction are you hoping to take with this for people to be able to absorb? I think ultimately it's about having a conversation. And I think if we emulate this behavior, or present this behavior for other people to emulate, 
I think we serve as an example. Um, we've been very tame today, Jeff. Yeah, very, very. I don't see this. I'll do that next time. <laughs> I don't see this conversation continuing to stay very tamed because it's a, it's a conversation that we're both very passionate about. We both have had like some really interesting, I mean, you know, when you basically understand who, she, who Nicola is, she's a white South African Jew. I mean, like how often do you see that? And then you also have the light skin, you know, African-American Southern rule. Like there's so much to that, right? I mean, I came from a place that didn't stop slavery yesterday, but it certainly didn't stop it a hundred years ago. It's been very recently, you know? And so you start to see it um, in ways, and I'm not just talking about how it's evolved. I'm talking real slavery on the ground, paying people, you know, peanuts, if anything, um, to do really hard labor. Um, and so that's what you see in rural markets. And so I, I include that being like not only North Florida, but like a lot of South Georgia, that stuff is still happening today. And so I think you you just don't find two individuals that are closer to these situations, but also have created a sense of understanding and then know how to actually tell stories that can evoke emotion and really help people to understand, to open up and hopefully just create a bit more empathy and understanding. So I, again, we've been talking about doing something together for years. And so I'm just so elated that this time has come and that our relationship has continued to stay as strong as it has been so that we can actually start to open up some hearts and some minds. Yeah, I second everything Tawana said. And I just, um, I, I think we really bring a very unique perspective to these issues. I think the fact of our lived experiences and then the fact that we have such a um, kind of honest relationship with each other and the fact that we've had a lot of really difficult conversations we are. We're trying to provide a map for what does it look like to have those conversations and not walk away angry, but instead walk away enlightened and more open-minded and more questioning. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about the uh, combination of you two for, for the reasons you, you just said, but again, not to minimize the fact that you are storytellers and you are marketers and I do think you will find unique ways to to bring this conversation into people's, uh, whether it's their podcasts, their uh, social media, whatever format you guys bring this to, I think it's going to be exciting and a much needed conversation. I have been a little bit down over the last several weeks just about our country. And as I read about the history of this country, uh, it's always been there and it's never been dealt with. And, and so I love the fact that you, you guys are going to find a new way to do that. And any way I can be helpful, um, please let me know. Hopefully we'll do this again on this, um, but I'll support you guys in anything you're doing. So thanks so much for, for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Jeff. We appreciate it so much. Yes. We, we couldn't start to get this message out without support from, from people like you. Absolutely. Awesome. So we'll keep doing it. Good to see you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. 
I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign-up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com, and I really do appreciate you listening. <laughs>